This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, good morning. Can you dig it? I can. This is your host, Sam LaCrosse, and we are here with the final episode of the Critical Gender Series and another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. So, I have spent the last month on this podcast, and the new podcast, I should say, and thank you guys all for listening to the interview with Sam Jarek last week. That was tremendous, and I'm glad you guys, uh, for the most part, what I've heard of, uh, like the interview, and I think he's great, and I think uh, all these other ones that are coming up are going to be great as well, so thank you. So, I have spent the last month Picking apart both men and women, I think I've been very fair in both of those critiques. You may have not liked either one of them, but you can't deny I was probably more harder, or more harder, um, harder on one than I was the other. And if you do, then I, I probably don't apologize. I really don't apologize for anything I write. But anyways, I have gone hard in the paint against men and against women for various reasons in society. So one, really men not just being pussies and not standing up for themselves, women for being Barbie dolls, all those other things, and this is all great, but what is the apex of this argument? What? It, why does this all matter? Why is there such a fixation and a focus right now on gender, whether that be transgender people, whether that be men, whether that be women, whether that be the way that all these people in Iraq, whether that be how we treat them in, in by the law, by you know everything else. So this last one, and it was actually kind of convenient that I was doing this because I wanted to get the year off this with this anyway, but as it happens, it fell uh, so that I had five weekends in January, so I could do a third volume of this. I was very excited about that. And I wanted to end it with something that was interesting and something that would make you think more than me just attacking people and attacking all this other stuff, which I don't like to do. I truly don't like to do it. I just kind of do it as a way to get people to see the problems as they are. And I, when I, I remember when I was writing the outline for this post back in... Um, December, mid-December of 2021, when I wrote all three of the all three of the critical gender series basically in a day, and I spent you know kind of all day outlining them and what did I want to say and talk about, and I found that it was interesting the way the third one was going about because I thought it was going to be you know do I want to do it strictly on you know transgender people and kind of what that means for society? Do I want to do kind of everything else? Do I kind of want to do whatever? And this one is has a heavy focus, I would say, on the non-males, the non-females in the world, transgender folks and all that stuff, but it's not about transgender folks. It's really not. It's about something much broader, and it's about something much more related to transgender people, to males, to females, to everyone in between, everyone in society. And I think it's something that all of society could use a little more of, and it happens to be a good point where 
we can all take all three, all the, or I should say all two of the prior critical gender series volumes and this critical gender volume to wrap it up, throw the hammer down and see how we do. So without further ado, here we go. So like I said, this is probably not what you were expecting for the third post, right? So I got you. However, they do matter. And here's why. Saturday, December 11th, 2021 was host to the last UFC pay-per-view card of the year. UFC 269 was an absolutely loaded event, stacked top to bottom with dominant champions, exciting contenders, and massive fights. Fight nuts around the world were hooked, I, being one of those nuts, couldn't have been more excited. UFC 269 was an incredibly interesting event. It lived up to the billing, the billing and then some. Many said it was the best card in all of 2021. But... Oddly enough, a lot of them did not have to do with a dominant showing that highlighted the top of the card. Lightweight champion Charles Oliveira absolutely dominated Dustin Poirier, submitting him in just over three rounds. The bout was highly hyped only for it to fall flat. So, if the anticipated main event didn't live up to the billing, why the positive reception? And in my opinion, the reason for that is twofold. The first reason is the dominant showing of Sugar Sean O'Malley. Sean O'Malley is arguably right now the biggest upcoming star in the UFC. O'Malley is known for many things, including his colored hair, wild tattoos, and obscene shit-talking that he does to his opponents. He's a controversial figure. He's in an open relationship. He's an avid user and advocate for the legalization of cannabis and other drugs. But Sugar Sean is also an incredibly dominant fighter. His striking is on par with the best in the UFC. People love a knockout and Sean O'Malley delivers plenty of them. To kick off the main card, the UFC placed O'Malley in his first-ranked fight against Haulian Paiva, who had just come off an impressive win over Kyler Phillips. It was enough to place Paiva in the vaunted top 15 in the 135-pound Bantamweight division, and O'Malley, who was unranked, was out to take his number. It didn't take long for Sugar Sean to absolutely obliterate Haulian Paiva, in a masterclass showing, O'Malley pieced up Paiva for nearly the entire five minutes of the first round. Landing precise and powerful punch after precise and powerful punch, O'Malley knocked Paiva out cold in the final seconds of the first round. Slumping, slumping against the ring in a bloodied heap, O'Malley flexed in front of the crowd that loved him, doing his trademark dribble and fadeaway routine that he does every time he blasts the poor fighter he's facing into another dimension. But that wasn't the highlight of the night. The second reason why UFC 269 ended up being so great was the co-main event that supplemented the fight between Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier. Amanda Nunez, the most dominant woman fighter to ever step into the UFC, was set to defend her title against challenger Juliana Pena, who had been calling her out for years. If you look up Amanda Nunez on YouTube, at least before this event, all you would see would be grisly images of her chewing up and spitting out every single woman she's probably ever faced. She's unlike anything the sport has ever seen. Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey, Chris Cyborg, Holly Holm, and Megan Anderson litter her list of women who she has effectively ended within the MMA world. She's a destroyer. Her ability to dominate in the ring, until then, had been unparalleled and unmatched. Juliana Pena entered the fight as a negative 1,000 underdog to beat Nunez. No one expected her to even come close, much less win. But the UFC is the most unpredictable sport in the world. One punch can literally change everything. It's the only sport in the world where literally anything can happen at any time. And that's exactly what happened at UFC 269. 
Pena's strategy to beat Nunez was to simply survive the first round, where Nunez has beaten most of her opponents, drag her into deeper rounds, and use her superior cardio and endurance to secure the win. Pena, to her credit, got mauled in the first round by Nunez, like most women that she has faced, but was able to survive. Stepping into the second round, Nunez was visibly gassed. Pena saw this and capitalized. Going toe-to-toe with Nunez in the center of the octagon, the two women unleashed fury on one another, putting everything into one punch after one punch and swinging away at each other in some of the craziest action the UFC had seen in some time. Nunez could hardly stand up. Pena took Nunez down, took her back, and submitted her with a rear naked choke to win the fight and become champion of the world. It stands today as the biggest upset in the history of professional mixed martial arts. From the outset of the craziness of the fights, this is enough to warrant a great card. But there's something else notable about both fights that is worth a broader point, one that people hesitate to bring up. All four fighters weighed the same, weighed the same weight, 135 pounds, the weight limit for the Bantamweight division in both the men's and women's UFC conferences. The two women were competing to be the best in the world. The two men were simply looking to sniff the top 15. Juliana Pena is now the best in the world in the women's Bantamweight division. Sean O'Malley is arguably the 15th best. But the reality of the situation is this. Sean O'Malley would absolutely destroy Juliana Pena. This is not a hot take. This is not an opinion. This is a fact, because gender is a fact, remember? If Sean O'Malley fought Juliana Pena, Sugar Sean would clean her up in much quicker fashion than he did Howley and Paiva. So would Alexander Volkanovsky if he fought Amanda Nunez, who is in the same weight class of featherweight. So that gives you an indication for those non-UFC fans out there how, how dominant Amanda Nunez is. She held a belt in two divisions for many, many years. So would, so would newly crowned feather, flyweight champion Davison Figueredo if he fought De- Valentina Shevchenko, who is in the same weight class of flyweight. Men have higher muscle mass, mass and bone density. Men are stronger. Men have larger and more powerful hands and feet. Men have bigger hips, legs, and arms. To say that men and women are equivalent in this regard, particularly with the dire physical consequences that something like the UFC can present, is a lie. It's ludicrous to even enter it into your head. But, unfortunately for us all, this ludicrous has entered the mainstream. In 2013, a fighter named Fallon Fox announced that she was a male-to-female transgender woman after her first two professional fights as a woman. Before that, she had lived for more than 30 years as a man. She had learned martial arts as a man. She had lifted weights and had the same testosterone and hormone levels and muscle mass as most men. But God forbid that someone pointed this out. This was Joe Rogan's first, quote, controversy before he became, quote, a controversial figure. Rogan's quote was as follows, quote, First of all, she's not really a she. She's she's a transgender, post-op person. The operation doesn't shave down your bone density. It doesn't change. You look at a man's hands and you look at a woman's hands and they're built differently. They're just thicker. They're stronger. Your wrists are thicker. Your elbows are thicker. Your joints are thicker. Just the mechanical functioning of punching. A man can do it much harder than a woman can. Period. End quote. Joe Rogan was mobbed for this statement. He was immediately denounced as a transphobe by radical transgender activists, most of whom reside in the fictional world of Twitter. But Joe Rogan was right. Fallon Fox mobbed the women that she faced in the octagon. 
Leah Thomas, a failed male-to-female, excuse me, transgender woman, is currently doing the same in women's collegiate swimming because of these exact same factors. To deny that these things are happening for these specific reasons is to deny reality itself, which is a very foolish thing to do. I want to reiterate something that I said when I first opened this series. This series, and this article in particular, is not meant to demean transgender people, because I have no issue with transgender people. I don't know many, but I assume that they are like most humans, kind, nice, and generally well-meaning. I believe that if you are of age and maturity to make an informed decision about what you think is best for your life and your responsibility to yourself and the world, you should be able to make that decision for yourself. If that decision is to identify as the opposite gender from which you were born as, then I respect that decision. But the problem that I have with all of the jargon, nonsense, and sloganeering around gender, and most particularly spoken by non-trans-identifying people, mind you, is that it is attacking the truth. To say that gender is not a fact, that it doesn't exist, that it has no implications for society, and that men and women are simply interchangeable widgets with no unique differences, is a blatant assault on the reality of our world. Gender is perhaps the most foundational truth of culture. If we cannot decide as a society what a man is and what is a woman, how can the world decide on more complicated issues? Critical gender theory, pushed by wild and power-hungry activists and authoritarians, is threatening to upend this foundational truth. There are such things as transgender people. We should respect them and their rights, because they're humans. But we also must respect those of non-trans men and women as well. The retaliation and the undermining of this basic truth of human culture, existence, and life, in the name of false and non-existent, quote, tolerance, must stop. When you threaten the foundation of anything, you automatically ensure the destruction of everything else that that foundation supports. When you unbind the truth, you unleash a Pandora's box of lies. Foundational truths like gender bind our society together. They allow us to facilitate the baseline of interactions on how we should inc interact with and speak to one another. Foundational truths like gender bind our society together, and to undo them will lead to massive, but largely or originally largely hidden, pain and suffering that will affect every single one of us. So, in reality, this post is not about gender at all. This series was not about gender at all. This post is about truth, why the truth matters, and why it needs to be discussed and embraced. But, like our posts on men and women earlier in the series, and like all dichotomous opposites, we need to see its opposites. The lies. We must understand why the madness is happening before we can work to stop it. And to do this, we will be unveiling the foundational lie that is causing all of this to happen, how society is becoming more and more destabilized because of this, and the devastation that it has and will continue to wreak should it persist. But before he said it couldn't handle the truth, Jack Nicholson exposed an archetype that can help us explain why our society currently can't. Part 1. The Deception In the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the aforementioned Jack Nicholson plays an incarcerated rapist who gets himself transitioned to a psychiatric ward to avoid hard labor. His character, Randall Mac McMurphy, is naturally a free spirit and hates the confines of his new facility. He immediately begins to inspire the other mental patients to become freer, 
and to rebel against that system. This catches the ire of the woman who institutes the confines of the institution, Nurse Mildred Ratched. Ratched, who oversees the psych ward, is initially shown as a kind matriarch, one who is caring and loving towards her mostly male patients who can't survive in the real world. But, over time, McMurphy begins to unveil who Ratched really is. An ideological tyrant. Ratched, as it turns out, has nearly absolute power over the inmates at the ward. She controls their supply of food and toiletries, their access to medications, and their overall freedoms. Whenever a patient catches her wrath, she knows exactly how and when to hurt them. She controls the patients through humiliation and shame, and occasionally sends in the orderlies to physically make an example of them. When McMurphy finally causes her to crack at the end of the film, she has them lobotomized. Nurse Ratchet is one of the scariest villains in the history of film because she is one of the most realistic villains in the history of film. Anyone can be a Nurse Ratchet. It's a simple concoction when you think about it. Take a little dash of unchecked bureaucracy, throw in some unchecked authority, inject some societal acceptance, and put it on a simmer over a bed of mostly helpless people, and you have a pretty malicious mixture. Nurse Ratchet is so terrifying because Nurse Ratchet is an incredibly easy thing to create. The real, the real life Nurse Ratched is a woman by the name of Joanna Olson Kennedy. Olson Kennedy ser currently serves as the medical director for the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development in Los Angeles, California. Specializing in adolescents, children, and teens, Olson Kennedy's main focus is running the biggest and most notable transgender youth medical organization in the United States. Like Nurse Ratched, Olson Kennedy does not interact with these children as a medical professional, even though she is one. And like Nurse Ratched, She's an unchecked bureaucrat. I don't like to use harsh language against people. It takes a lot within me to come to a conclusion as the one I'm about to say. But given the topic and the power she wields over it, nothing else can be said. No word would be strong enough to describe her. Joanna Olson Kennedy is an evil person. She's a power-drunk bully who uses confused young children as a weapon to wage ideological war against her enemies. The children that she sees are the equivalent of Nurse Ratched's medical patients. The vast majority of them are confused, helpless, and sick. The parents, mostly in good faith, I would hope to hopefully presume, take them to Olson Kennedy's medical practice in hopes to heal them. But what actually happens is sickening. Olson Kennedy's facility is a proponent of a new phenomenon called, quote, affirmative care. Affirmative care, in the case of gender-confused children, is simple. Whatever the child says goes. Make sure to affirm them in their new identity, whatever it may be. To push back, according to this ideology, would be to put the child on a fast track to harm, and sometimes even death. It's better to have a happy daughter than a dead son, or the inverse, in these cases, they tell you. But it gets even more insane. Particularly in places like California, affirmative care in the form of therapy is not enough. No. Action must be taken as well. These children, sometimes as young as three years old, are put on the fast track to transition. They are given hormones and puberty blockers. If they're of older age, they're sometimes recommended for life-altering surgeries. In a lot of places, parental consent isn't even necessary. The child can just get a note from an affirmative care clinic and get a dose of whatever chemical they want using their parents' insurance dollars. You have to be 18 years old in order to consent to have sex. But to potentially rip apart your identity... You can be much younger. 
People like Joanna Olson Kennedy are sickening because they facilitate this harm to children. Are there kids that could turn out to be transgender? Of course there are. All transgender adults in the world had to be children at one point. But it is much different to simply force them down a path that they could very well regret. Instead of observing and questioning, like all quality scientists do, these charlatans simply stick up to the part of the scientific method where experiments are done. A vast majority of the children who suffer from rapid-onset gender dysphoria eventually grow out of it, usually becoming either gay or lesbian in adulthood. You do not need surgery to be homosexual. You do not need to change anything. You can be yourself and live as you are. But to people like Joanna Olson Kennedy, this cannot stand. They must be converted. Why? Well, because the quote experts and the quote unquote scientists say so. But they should not be able to say so because they are not quality scientists. In fact, they're not scientists at all. They're ideologues. They use these children and their parents who were terrified of getting caught in the modern day woke society Leviathan as their weapons for enforcing their non-scientific nonsense on the most innocent population in the world. To any remotely sane person, this would be categorized as I just described, evil and morally wrong. Harming children, as it turns out, is not a good thing to do. It is arguably the worst thing you can do. So why are people allowed to do this? Why, in the name of some dogshit ideology, using gender as an example, but there are many others, is this allowed to stand? The reason is because gender, as mentioned earlier, is not being hyped as a topic simply to advocate for homosexuals, transgender folks, and women. At its core, it is something very different. Gender is being used as a cudgel so that malicious people can weaponize it. The reason that these people are weaponizing it is to use it in a war against truth. We've spoken about postmodernism at length, but it deserves a revisiting for this crucial topic. In essence, postmodernism is the notion that no su there is no such thing as objective truth or reality. Every facet and function of that reality is inherently malleable. Nothing can be for certain because nothing can be proven as real. The common end of the spectrum is something like critical gender theory, while the extreme end is something like the USSR under Stalin. Each has one goal in the back of their mind, one goal driving their ideology forward. The truth is inconvenient, so the truth must be destroyed. To give these folks some credit, there's a nugget of truth to their argument. Anyone who understands the core functionality of any science, even me who is mostly a complete and utter dumbass when it comes to science, knows that nothing can be totally proven as true. That is why science still exists. It's a constant evolution. It's the ultimate source of improvement. Scientists are always trying to make the good better and the better the best, at least the actual ones are. We mere mortals are better off for it, always. And to give the postmodernists even more credence, this is a good thing that science is this way. It's better when things are made better, when old processes are discarded for new ones that prove to be more effective. My conservative friends usually don't want to admit this, but this is why liberals and liberalism are so necessary for society. We need innovation, newness, and creative destruction in order to survive. Entrepreneurship, science, art, and everything that falls into the category are all liberal by definition. Us conservatives should look to and embrace them, should they be constructive, and do our best to maintain and push back against things that are not. That's our job as, con that's a job as conservatives, by the way. Or the job of conservatives, by the way. But that is where the praise must stop. Because when you undo all truth, when you say that none of it is real, 
That is the recipe for one thing and one thing only. Chaos. If there is nothing we can base our lives and our society on, we will go insane. Regardless of how these aforementioned groups of people feel about things, they themselves base their lives off the truth in many ways. If they didn't, they would go absolutely batshit fucking nuts. We all would go absolutely batshit fucking nuts. This is exactly what ha is happening with things and the craziness around critical gender theory and other critical theories like it. It gives the lease on people with malicious actions and intents to upend culture and society. It gives them the keys to a weapons cache to subvert the largely proven truths of society based on nothing but your own subjective opinion. It allows them to take anything to access and, more dangerously, allows people with malice in their hearts to craft an agenda that uses these weapons as tools of mass destruction. The reason why Dave Chappelle said gender is a fact is because it is. There are countless sources of data over a large portion of time that show that. And deep down, whether we want to admit it or not, I think we all know it to be true as well. The reason for this is because we base our lives on fundamental truths such as the reality of gender. Most people, if you are indeed a sane person, do not go around obsessing over gender ideology all the time. This is a good thing. But how often have you thought of things like your consciousness or being able to perceive the world? You might not think of it in that sense, but your five senses, if you're blessed enough to have them in working order, would put you on the straight and narrow pretty damn quick. Is gravity real? Of course it is. You're not floating in space. Will you puke your guts out if you drink a bottle of Jack Daniels due to alcohol poisoning? If you're not a Motley Crue member, the answer is most definitely yes. Think about this for a second. What would happen to your mind, to anyone's mind, if they did not believe in things like consciousness, gravity, and puking your guts out from alcohol poisoning? That all these things are, quote, social constructs, when nearly all the evidence that we have proves to the contrary. Are there exceptions to this? Sure there are. Nikki Six and Tommy Lee come to mind. But they are just that. Exceptions. Trying to base your life on a series of outliers is the equivalent of strapping your brain to a lightning rod. You could power your house and capture a ton of energy, but most likely you're going to fry yourself halfway to hell. Gender, as mentioned earlier, is the easiest of these topics to do it with. It's an incredibly disruptive landmine and landmine-filled topic even though it's a remarkably simple thing to understand. Social consciousness, albeit false for the most part, is very powerful. It tends to ward off most people from doing anything significant surrounding pushing back on the issue itself. On the flip side, for slacktivists like Joanna Olson Kennedy that weaponize it in order to push ideology, you will get more steam behind issues such as this because it's already such a hot-button issue. People, to their credit and virtue, do not want to be offensive or hurt people. The truth in the words that tell it can hurt somebody. Anyone who tells you otherwise is foolish. People, being people, generally don't want to hurt others. So they naturally go along with whatever narrative is, quote, nicer. If they're screamed at and threatened, odds are they'll run to that conclusion even faster. The people that push anti-truth ideology are chameleons. They have a very clever strategy. They act as if they're taking the concerns of the helpless and weak into consideration. They want to be, quote, allies, and, quote, supportive, and, quote, seek justice. But these people are liars. These people are not friends of an oppressed group. Rather, they're their wielders and handlers. They use these group of folks, particularly that of a social conscious minority, such as black folks, a member of the pride community, as bludgeons 
to smash a hole in the wall for the thing of that thing that they wish to destroy. Both political parties have done this with the middle class for like at least the last 50 million years. Save the children, right? Believe all women. It's all the same game, just with different faces attached to it. Not only is this counterintuitive, but as mentioned before, it's blatantly malicious. It's whatever ism, like an actual one, that you want to call it. The war on truth is dissolving our society. But before it can be fully dissolved, it must first be destabilized. Part 2. The Destabilization In his book, The Authoritarian Moment, author and political commentator Ben Shapiro addressed the problem I mentioned in the last section in regards to the, quote, niceness problem that a lot of people have with people who are waging the war against truth. While definitely more slanted towards the conservative outlook on situations, Shapiro accurately dubbed this the, quote, the cordiality principle. Shapiro pointed out that due to most people, again, accurately, being nice and good people, most are hesitant to tell the truth in a lot of scenarios. It could hurt someone's feelings, so sometimes it's better not to tell them. It's easy to sympathize with this point of view. I personally struggle with it a lot when I write my blog posts, most of my posts, actually. I hardly know any of these people. I could be hurting their feelings. I definitely have in the last two posts, so I'll take that for what it is. The reason that I and others can do this is because they have an opinion that they, quote, hopefully, believe is based on enough evidence to where they can attempt to proclaim it as a fact. Truth is not a convenient thing. It is the only thing. Telling the truth, especially in a world that is beginning to be filled with more and more lies, makes the people that do it the bravest among us. Societies cannot stand when the truth isn't told. It naturally tilts it on its, tilts it on its axis. It disproportionately hurts the weak and marginalized, oftentimes and ironically the ones that these people are claiming to protect. But in a time where lies from our expert and ruling classes and mob that supports them are becoming more and more dominant, telling the truth can also make you something else. Dangerous. Liars do not like when people tell the truth. And why wouldn't they? They're deliberately taking aim at the entire stance in a position, their entire identity based on that one false idea that they help to propagate amongst the masses. Truth is inconvenient when the lie makes you more powerful. Just ask jo Joanna Olson Kennedy and the people like her. Evil people like her now, now run Orwellian medical clinics that damage mostly confused children, sometimes in most horribly and irreversible fashion. So, naturally, people that tell the truth, people that attempt to stabilize society, are seen as a threat by those who tell the lies that uphold that power. They must be destroyed. However, the thing that the liars do not realize is that, when you compare the two propositions against one another, any sane person, if they are telling the truth to themselves, will begin to immediately weed out the liar's position. This is not a political issue. This is not a race issue. This is not a gender issue. It is merely an issue of honesty and sanity. Most people, I would like to believe, are honest and sane. Unfortunately, the honest and sane people that dare speak up are immediately demon or demonized, well, and demonetized in, in some cases. 
The three people in regards to gender that most fit this billing, however, are very interesting. In this narrative, the people who want to uphold the lie that gender doesn't matter would like you to think that it's some kind of male-dominated patriarchy who fetishizes about blowing Charlie Kirk and Donald Trump Jr. But in actuality, the parody is quite shocking and quite different. The three people who have taken especially strong heat in the last couple of years for their pushback against radical stances against gender are Abigail Schreier, Deborah So, and Matt Walsh. The strange thing is, contrary to that prior narrative, this group of folks cannot be more diverse. Schreier is a Jewish, Jewish mother of three who works as a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and lit the world on fire with her book Irreversible Damage, which talked about the rapid rise of rapid onset gender dysphoria, the very thing that Joanna Olson Kennedy enables. So is, an, so is an atheist Asian-Canadian sex scientist who deliberately left the field because she realizes that, also to the point earlier, science is no longer science. She authored the book The End of Gender, which used her and her other scientific research to blatantly debunk the lies surrounding gender. She also lit the world on fire. Walsh is a Catholic conservative political commentator who works with Shapiro at the Daily Wire. He bought an apartment to protest the Loudoun County bathroom laws and recently went on Dr. Phil to defend his children's book, Johnny the Walrus, which is a massive troll against affirmative care and those who practice it. He effectively doused the world with lighter fluid and then lit it on fire, so he also blew it up. All three of these individuals have been especially demonized. It's sometimes hard to watch, specifically against Schreier and So, who were just an honest journalist and scientist before they discovered something inconvenient to the lies. Walsh is easier to understand, who willingly throws himself into the fray and shake things, shakes things up. But even though a lot of them don't have much in common, other than Schreier and So being feminist women, the thing that they do have in common is that the most important thing that we can take from the, their example. All three of these people correctly believe that the lies around critical gender theory and gender ideology have the potential to completely devastate our society and culture. To appropriate Schreier's book title, this can and is doing irreversible damage to a lot of people. It's destroying innocent lives, like the young girl in the Loudoun County bathroom and the other, ch and the other young children in Olson Kennedy's clinic. These ideas are dangerous and poisonous. They do nothing more than provide mass confusion the, to the young people of America. Most tragically, particularly for this demographic, it's aimed more at young women than at young men due to rapid onset gender dysphoria affecting more young women than it does young men. When you confuse children early enough about something as fundamental such as gender or race, that confusion tends to trickle, down, trickle upwards incredibly quickly. Why? Well, because of the factors we discussed earlier. A society is not a society unless it is made up of individual people. Therefore, to be a stabilized society, we need stable people. When young people are not stabilized in the fundamentals of their identity, the blocking and tackling of their lives, this throws them off course. They have no idea what is real. They have no idea who they are. Think of yourself in a situation such as this. What happens when you don't know something? Well, you don't know the answer to a question. Well, you ask somebody, of course. You ask your calculus professor when you can't solve an integral. You ask your English teacher when you can't understand a misplaced modifier, of which I am horrific at, if you couldn't tell. You ask your parents about fiscal responsibility and your cool and older cousin about dating. In other words, you go to an expert. But here lies the problem, one we've already tackled before. What if all the experts are stupid? Americans are nothing if not ingenuitive. 
We find ways to get shit done and get shit done fast. So when you look at the, this from this trajectory, it's no wonder why so many incompetent people are in positions of power. When you can figure out how to play the game, how to climb the ladder, and how to rig the system for your benefit, you can get to any place in power, no matter what it is. One of the more humbling things about joining the adult world in the recent years is that you realize that hardly no one who you thought was that smart when you were younger is actually that smart. Not your parents, not your role models, not anyone. They're all people just like you. We're all, to most of our credit, mostly trying to figure it out. Therefore, whether it's businessmen or doctor or politicians, skepticism must be brought forward. The wheat must be separated from the chaff. The cream must rise to the top. If we do not question those in power, power itself will become powerless. We cannot take this to the extreme because that would be what our friends the postmodernists do. There must be some structure. But to let people skate by without seeing if they can do the job that they claim to do is nothing short of crazy. When you remove the pedestal and the foundational pedestal at that, of truth in society, you consequently remove everything that can be based on the truth. Values are based on the truth. Values comprise who we are as individual human beings. We are nothing without them. So, therefore, we are nothing without the truth that underlies those values. When we get rid of the truth, we throw values out the window. We open the door for people who don't know a fucking thing about it to replace them and shit it all over our carpet. This is a recipe for disaster, and it's showing. If you don't have your values and the truth underneath those values to stand upon, you're constantly at internal conflict with yourself. In a lot of cases, internal conflict can be good. It shows that you have basic morality and are exercising it. This is a good thing. But it's not constructive at all to not know anything about yourself or what you compose. Human beings wither away and die without objectivity. We become interchangeable widgets. They become easily manipulated and used by people who actually have the balls to tell themselves some kind of truth about themselves. This phenomenon, this destabilization of society through the war on truth, is, in my estimation, what is causing the majority of the divide and problems in our country. More importantly, it's what's providing the divide in all of our relationships. It's not that we are all wired to hate each other's guts on whether we think Congress will flop from blue to red in November. It's not people who hate one identity group versus another, even though doing it for actual reasons is obviously abhorrent. It is not any of these things. Miraculously and strangely, the divide is simply this. If you embrace and want the truth, you are on one side. If you deny the truth, you are on the other side. This makes total sense when you think about it. Truth and lies are diametrically opposed. They're opposites. They are the yin and yang, life and death, light and darkness. There could not be a more stark contrast. So no wonder why we can't agree on anything anymore. No wonder why people are tribalizing by how you vote, how you look, and what gender you are. It's all a web of lies that has been blown to excess hell by people who have no fucking clue what they're doing and how it's hurting people. We have not helped by accepting it. There is still such a thing as personal agency and individualism, if you weren't aware. But to say that this is not a societal problem is to deny the problem itself. It is to succumb to the lie and ignore the truth. This type of madness puts you in constant internal conflict with yourself. And it's good to question yourself. It's good to see if your beliefs are wrong or if they can be made better. But when it compromises your individual capacity to be a human being, that's where the line must be drawn. 
This is the catalyst for our, the current division we are seeing in terms of our relationships. No one knows that anyone thinks of anything. If there is no such thing as truth, and anything that anyone claims is the truth is bad, then why the hell would anyone be incentivized to tell it? The answer is that no one does, and no one is. It's eroding our society and forcing us to go into battle with one another to sort out the liars. The problem with this is that, in our war of truth, we don't know that demographic either. It's impossible to know the liars because the liars are opposite of the truth. You cannot know what is false if you do not know what is true. We could solve this problem. We could. However, the fragility we've talked about in terms of the current conversation around gender has begun to trickle into every aspect of our lives. Most, as mentioned previously, do not want to ruffle many feathers in the way there. But we should. We should be brave. But we're not. The people at the opposite end of this, particularly the weak, are suffering. Soon they will be gone. And what's left of them will be, and sadly already is, a horror that no one will ever want to look upon. Part 3. The Devastation Consider the Lobster, an essay by David Foster Wallace that he published in 2005, was one of the first work of literature to truly shake me. I first read it in my junior year of high school, where it was recommended to me by my AP language arts teacher. In the essay, Wallace details the process of two things, the cooking of Maine lobsters and the reactions of their brains to suffering. Lobsters, particularly those in fresh-catch seafood places, are hard reads. You cannot tell that they are suffering. They're shellfish, after all. The most emotion we'll see out of one is Mr. Krabs, and he's a cartoon. The process of cooking a lobster in a fresh-catch restaurant is simple. First, the lobster is selected from a saltwater tank, usually by the patron who wants to eat it. It is then thrown into a pot of water, alive, and boiled and steamed. After boiling to death... The lobster is then trussed up and trotted out for eating, usually with butter. The Maine Lobster Festival, the target of Wallace's essay, is famous for this type of treatment. They devote an entire day to the mistreatment of these creatures for our culinary pleasure. The reason that Wallace's essay shook the world and shook me was because we are, by all metrics, ignorant to this. We don't care about the lobsters. We only care that we eat them. We don't care that we literally boil animals alive in a pot in front of their lobster relatives. We just care that we get fed. The point of Consider the Lobster is to get people to question one of the hardest things there is to question. Our ethics and our complicity in suffering when we fail to abide by them. We all really know what's happening when these lobsters and they're getting cooked. They're dying. They're suffering extraordinarily. Other things have to die for us to survive. This is natural selection. It is the way of the world, it is the way that the world works, has always worked, and will continue to work. We do this all the time when it comes to food. Americans worship food, like a lot of cultures. It's very important to our overall fabric of society and traditions that we take from it. The greatest of these examples is the coveted Thanksgiving turkey. The centerpiece of this essential American meal, 
Millions of these birds are slaughtered every single fall to bring us joy. They're made to be beautiful in their death. Family after family slaves over them year in and year out, making sure they're properly spruced up for proper eating. Afterwards, they're torn to shreds and devoured piece by piece. The leftovers are good for a few days, but people tire of them after a while. After those few days, the remains are casually discarded. They're usually left to rot in a landfill. So, to use Wallace's phrase, consider the lobster and the Thanksgiving turkey and everything else that is to suffer for our collective enjoyment and novelty. These animals would not share our amusement. They wouldn't think that it is good for them to do these things. But yet we still do these things. We still enjoy our food, as we always have and forever will. Thankfully, we at least have some boundaries. We don't eat our dogs. We don't roast cats on a spit. We don't stuff a Maltese's head and put it above our fireplace. We don't skin guinea pigs and stuff them full of vegetables. We don't do what we do to the lobsters and turkeys and everything else to our children. Or do we? Take it upon yourself to consider the lobster. Would you like to be forced to be labeled, forced into something, cut up, mutilated, and deformed on the pre pretense that it's, quote, good for you, that you would be, quote, accepted, that you could finally, quote, be someone? You would probably say that you wouldn't, that it would, beneath you to, it would be beneath you to do such things. You would never stoop to that level just to please someone. That would be insane, you say. But it's not. It's what any insecure and otherwise helpless person will do, particularly if it means survival. As mentioned countless times throughout the series, and most recently on our posts about men, our base instinct is just that, to survive. Without survival, we really don't have much of a leg to stand on. If you can't survive, you can't do much of anything else. A lot of this insecurity takes place in children, the demographic of society that is most horribly affected by this insanity surrounding gender in our society. They have begun to think that there is something so fundamentally wrong about them that they need to make a fundamental change in order to correct that non-thing. That thing, many of them are falsely discovering, is their gender. If their gender, the thing that is one of the very few things that holds together the whole fabric of their, ide fabric of their identity, is leveraged by these children and others as the problem, then it must be destroyed. But what if it wasn't the problem? It hardly ever is. For some it is, as evidenced by the plentiful number of stable transgender folks that exist in our society, many of them contributing members to that society. We should be thankful for that, and that they're not doing worse. Society is much worse off when the individuals that comprise it start doing worse. The thing that struck me most about Abigail Schreier's honesty and powerful analysis of this community of people, particularly focused on young women, was the bravery of the people who realized their mistakes and those who had misled them. This is not the case of every young person who decides to transition because, again, there are such a thing as transgender people. But there is such a thing as people buying into a slippery slope of dangerous ideology. We have seen this throughout the course of human history. Tyrants such as Hitler and Pol Pot did this. Charles Manson did this. The racists who instituted Jim Crow did this. All of these movements had the same focus. One target area of, quote, marginalized people to pin against another. But these, of course, were lies. The people that ran these movements did not want to lift anyone up. They only wanted to get rid of competition. Hitler knew that Jewish folks had great success in life. Stalin knew that the people who owned property were respected. 
Charles Manson knew that minorities and people in power didn't like him. Jim Crow advocates knew that black people are fully capable of rising up to be powerful members of society. So they all decided to target a specific group of people, lie to all of their followers about it, and do their best to destroy them. Some of you might be throwing a flag on this one. Gender theory and people who advocate for it don't kill people, you might say. And I would say that you're right in most cases. It doesn't necessarily kill people. However, to say that it does not, at the minimum, harm people would be an outright and diabolical lie. The war on truth cannot hold back the scars that are starting to emerge on the surface. Abigail Schreier and other brave souls like her merely crack the pavement on this crucial issue. It's only a matter of time before the whole sidewalk collapses in on itself. The stories that hit the hardest in Abigail Schreier's irreversible damage were those of the detransitioners, children that had been poisoned by radical gender activists and had regretted their decision to transition to the opposite sex. Some of them have horrific scars on their forearms, which is the place that doctors primarily look to shave heavy layers of skin to form penises. Their voices are going to be deep forever. Some of them have beards that will never stop growing. Their muscle mass is permanently altered. A painful number of them will have been rendered infertile. They realize their mistake too late, and unfortunately have to live with the rest of their, their live with it the rest of their days. The social cost that also comes with detransitioning is immense. In most cases, a young person who bought into gender ideology had to shed most of their old lives and relationships in order to be quote accepted by their new ones. But when they decide that a mistake was made, bridges can or are ruthlessly burned. They're bullied and excommunicated. Who they thought had their back really never did. They only wanted to use their back to stand on. So, a lot of them crawl back to their families, most of which they had called horrible names like bigots and transphobes. Their families most likely were also shamed and misled by a good portion of the fraudulent medical establishment run by people like the monster that is Joanne Olson Kennedy. The very people that poisoned the minds of their children, the ones that took them from them, now had the nerve to shame them for their, quote, transgressions. I feel the need to say this again, that not every person who, that this is not every person who chooses to become trans. There are people out there that do this. We should do as our best, our best as a culture to be accepting of them, like we should to everyone else. If they are not fringing upon anyone else's rights to pursue meaning, we should not do the same to theirs. However, we should not stand at all for people, particularly children, to be coerced into doing this, especially when they're in vulnerable phases of their lives. It's wrong. The consequences are immense. We should support these children and people, guide them through this tumultuous time, and not succumb to haste and societal pressure to, quote, do the right thing. These people don't know what the right thing is. Those closest to them do. To give into that falsehood is, potentially, is to potentially deliver your child into the belly of the beast, one that most of whom have no hope of surviving. Lies only help the people that tell them. The truth helps everyone. Everyone knows the level playing field. Everyone knows how to get better. When you go down the path of throwing all that, out, all that past wisdom, when you destroy the past, bad things happen. As Tucker Carlson so aptly put it, and you know, this has been mentioned before in another article also, the reason that people destroy the past is to get rid of all reference points for the future. He was correct about that. The truth is our past. It is every experience that has ever been collected, recorded, and sampled. When that, the truth, is destroyed, 
You leave it up to the people who do most of the talking, the liars, to shape it however you want, however they want. And this would be a very bad thing. The only reason that people lie is to benefit themselves. They don't do it for selfless reasons. They don't do it to help some cause or some group or whatever. It's self-preservation, conditioning for future purposes that they want to create and dominate because they think it will suit them better. When a society becomes built off of selfish, selfishness driven by lies, people begin to suffer unimaginably. The only way to impede against this is to defend the truth and those who tell it. And this is not relegated to just gender. This post is not relegated to, this, to just gender. This series is not relegated to just gender. It's a throbbing middle finger to anyone who dares to tell lies that could greatly harm people. To say that women can't act like themselves and not like the plentiful Barbie dolls that pepper society. To say that men should not embody masculinity and stand the fuck up for themselves. That gender roles don't matter. That the people that don't hold up them with decency, honor, and respect need to do better, grow up, and start doing it. Gender matters because of its fundamental nature. Without the fundamental nature of gender, so many other fundamentals begin to be lost in the shuffle. The foundation that holds up our collective house begins to crumble. And then, all that's left is to fall through the cracks. The war on truth, as greatest emphasized by the war on gender, is the greatest threat that our society currently faces. The truth is the great bulwark against chaos. It is what keep the barbar keeps the barbarians far away from the gate. When we erode truth, when we begin to take out the structures of our society that truly help us move forward, we begin to erode civilization. We harm people in unimaginable ways, not by speaking forthrightly and precisely about what they need to do in order to succeed. That sin resides with us all, but as does the virtue of correcting it. The point of this series was to remind us of that. The truth about all of us is that we are all human beings, and we should not let collective identity shackle us to anything, especially lies. We are individual human beings with individual dreams, desires, and goals. Anyone who tells you that those things don't matter, that something else is more important, is someone that you cannot tell the truth and that cannot be trusted. The Critical Gender series is built as a reminder to us all that it does matter, and we need to remember and uphold the truths it contains. Because let's face it, we don't need more activists, Barbies, or Ken dolls. See you all on the other side of the insanity. Okay, everybody. That is the end of the month-long Critical Gender series. That was a lot. That was a lot of fun, I thought. I, I had a great time diving in, writing all these stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. I hope, you know, it was, you got something from it, at least kind of, I don't know, and were able to kind of, you know, move forward and kind of see something through it. I, again, I had a really great time doing this. I know it's kind of a hot button topic or whatever issue or anything like that, but I appreciate you guys sticking with me, listening, being open to conversation. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys next week. We got some exciting stuff planned and I can't wait for you guys to see it. So until then, own the day, open your mind, have a great one guys. We'll see you next week. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?